0: We present Monkey An abridged translation of the great Chinese classic Journey to the West Written by Wu Un, Translated by Arthur Whaley And narrated by Bob Jones Chapter 9 the great city of Chang'an had from generation to generation been the capital of all China. At this time it was Tai Tsung of the dynasty of Tang who was on the throne. The whole land was at peace. Tribute-bearers poured in from every side, and the whole world paid homage to him. One day. When he was receiving all his ministers at court, the Prime Minister Wei Cheng submitted the following proposal. Now that the Empire is everywhere at peace, let us conform with the ancient custom and invite scholars from every quarter to come for examination that your Majesty may have talent to assist you in your work of government. The proposal was accepted and a summons sent all over China invited any that were learned in books, no matter whether they were soldiers or peasants, to come to the capital and attend an examination. When the summons reached Hai Chou, a certain Chun Oh, who lived in those parts, went straight home and said to his mother, It is announced that an examination is to be held. In order to pick out men of talent, I intend to respond. One never knows, I may succeed in getting some little job or other which will make me more of a credit to my parents, and enable me to support a family. That is all I desire. I have come to tell you of my departure. "'My son,' she said, "'you are a well-read man. Learn when young, act when grown. You are quite right to go. All I beg is that you will take care of yourself on your journey, and come back as soon as you have secured a post.' Chun then ordered his servant to put together his things and saying farewell to his mother, he hurried to the capital. When he arrived, he found that the examination had just begun, and he went straight in. He qualified in the preliminary tests and at the final court examinations received the first place, the certificate being signed with the Emperor's own hand. Then for three days, as the custom is, he was led through the streets on horseback. At one point, the procession passed the house of a minister called Yin Kai Shan. This minister had an only daughter called Wen Chiao, who was not yet married, and sat in a high festooned tower with an embroidered ball in her hand. The man whom this ball struck when she threw it down was to be her husband. When Chen was led past the tower, she saw that he was a man of fine appearance and she knew that he had just taken the first place in the examinations. The idea of marrying him pleased her uncommonly. She threw down her ball and it fell exactly on the middle of Chun's black gauze hat. The next minute Chen heard a twittering of flutes and reed-organs and down from the tower came a whole posse of maids and serving girls who took Chen's horse by the bridle and led him into the courtyard of the minister's house. The minister and his wife came hurrying down from the hall, calling upon all their guests and visitors to assist in the wedding ceremony. When the bridal pair had bowed to heaven and earth, and saluted the bride's parents, a banquet was prepared, and the whole night passed in merrymaking and drinking. Then, hand in hand, the two of them entered the bridal chamber. Early next morning, at audience in the Palace of Golden Bells, the Emperor asked what post should be given to the first graduate. The Prime Minister replied that there was a vacancy at Chiang Chou. Chen was accordingly made Governor of Chiang Chou and ordered to take up his duties at once. Chen thanked the Emperor and went back to the Minister's house to arrange things with his wife and pay his respects to his parents-in-law. He then set out with his wife for Chang Cho. It was late spring when he left the capital. A gentle wind fanned the green of the willows, a fine rain stabbed the red of the flowers. Chun's way took him close to Hai Chou, and here he was able to introduce his wife to his mother. The power of your blessing he explained to her, enabled me to come out top in the examination. Being led through the streets on horseback, I happened to pass Minister Yin's house, from which an embroidered ball fell upon me, and I found myself invited to become his son-in-law. The Emperor has made me governor of Changchou, and I count upon you to come with us. His mother was delighted and set out with them at once. After travelling a few days, they reached the Inn of Ten Thousand Blossoms, which was kept by a certain Liu Xiao'ar. Here the mother suddenly became unwell, and she said to her son, I am not feeling well. Let us rest here for a day or two before going on. Chen consented. Next day, a man arrived at the inn with a golden-coloured carp for sale. Chen bought it for a string of cash thinking it would make a wholesome dish for his mother. Suddenly he noticed that the fish's eyes flickered in a peculiar manner. I have heard, he said, that when the eyes of fish or snake flicker, one may be sure they are not ordinary creatures. He asked the man where the fish came from. From the Hung River, said the man, about fifteen leagues from the town. Chun accordingly had the fish put back alive into this river. When his mother heard of it, she thoroughly approved. To release living things, she said, is an act of piety. I am very glad you did it. We have been here three days, said Chun, and if I do not start out again at once, I shall not arrive by the appointed time. I think of starting tomorrow. Shall you be well enough by then? I am afraid not, said his mother. It is beginning to get very hot for traveling, and I fear I should get worse. Please arrange for me to have a room here. You can leave some of the luggage, and I will follow you when the weather is cooler. So Chun hired a room for his mother, and he and his wife set off for Chang At the crossing over the Hung River, they were met by two ferrymen called Liu and Li, whom, so it happened, Chun had injured in a previous incarnation. When they were on board the boat, Liu began to stare at Chun's wife, who was indeed of matchless beauty. After whispering to Li, he took the boat to a totally unfrequented spot, and at dead of night, first killed the servants and next Chun himself. throwing all the bodies into the river. Seeing the fate of her husband, Mrs Chun tried to jump into the river, but Liu threw his arms about her and stopped her, saying, Come with me and everything will be all right. If you refuse, the same sword will serve well enough for both. Chun's wife could think of nothing better to do than give in for the time being, and she told Liu to do with her as he would. He took the boat across to the other shore where he left it in charge of Li, while well, he himself purloined Chun's official robes, hat, and credentials. Then, with Mrs. Chun, he set out for Chiang Chou. The other bodies floated downstream, but Chun's sank straight to the bottom and stayed there. A Yaksha that was patrolling the waters saw it, and rushing off to the Dragon King's palace announced that an unknown body, apparently that of a scholar, had been thrown into the river and was lying at the bottom. The Dragon King ordered the body to be brought to him, and at once recognized it as that of his benefactor. One good deed deserves another, he said. I must get his life back, in return for his kindness the other day. So he sent a yaksha to the municipal shrine at Hung Chou to ask for Chun's soul. The god of the shrine soon found it among those of the newly dead and gave it to a little demon to hand over to the yaksha who brought it back to the Dragon King in his palace. Now, said the Dragon King, perhaps you wouldn't mind telling me your name and where you come from. When Chun had told his story. The Dragon King said to him, It will surprise you to learn that the golden carp which you put back in the water was I, myself. Thus you are my benefactor and it was only natural that when you got into difficulties I came to your assistance. For the present I am going to ask you to serve in my water bureau as an officer. Chun bowed his thanks and consent, and presently was entertained to dinner by the Dragon Court. Mrs. Chun was so disgusted by the presence of Liu that she could neither eat nor sleep but she remembered that she was going to have a child and there was nothing for it but to keep going as best she could and follow her captor. At last they reached Changchou, where they were met by all the clerks and lictors, and Liu, posing as the new governor, was entertained by his subordinates at the great official banquet. My arrival here is due solely to your flattering support. Not at all, they said. Your entertainment is on the contrary the due reward of your exceptional talents, your parental kindness towards those who are in your charge, and your fairness in settling litigation. Pray do not be too modest. One day, when the counterfeit governor had gone on official business to a place some way from the city, His wife sat in a high bower, thinking sadly of her mother and husband. (sighs) Suddenly, a great lassitude seized her, together with sharp pains in her belly. She fell into a swoon upon the floor, and gave birth then and there. (coughs) To a son. At this moment, a mysterious voice whispered in her ear. Listen to what I am telling you. I am the Lord of the Southern Pole Star. It was by command of the Bodhisattva Kuen Yin that I brought you this child. One day, he will be famous throughout the world. Be sure that he is no common mortal. When Liu comes back, he will certainly try to harm this child. You must guard it with all your might. The Dragon King has your husband in his care. And in due time, you are to be reunited, you, he, and the child, and in due time, your enemies will be punished. When she came to herself, the visitant had departed, but she remembered every word. She clasped the child in her arms, but could think of no further way to protect it. As soon as Léo came back and saw the child, he ordered it to be slain. She objected that it was now too late in the day, but promised to throw it into the river early in the morning. Fortunately, Liu was again called away on urgent business early next day. If he finds it here when he comes back, she said to herself, he will certainly destroy it. I had better go at once and abandon it in the river, on the chance that some miracle may save it. Perhaps heaven will take pity on it and cause someone to pass that way and save it. Who knows but that I may indeed one day see the child again. But how should she recognize the child? To make sure of doing so, she bit her finger and wrote a letter with her blood, naming its parentage and setting forth all its history. Then she bit off the top joint of the little toe of its left foot that there be no mistake about its identity, she took her inner garment, wrapped it round the child, and when no one was looking, slipped out with it into the street. Luckily the river was not far off. When she reached the river, she gave one long piercing cry, and was just about to throw it in when she saw a plank come floating along by the bank. Lifting her head and praying to heaven, She tied the child to the plank with her sash, the blood letter, at its breast, and pushed the plank out into the river to float where it would. Then, weeping bitterly, she returned to the town. Meanwhile the plank floated downstream and eventually came to a standstill just opposite the temple of the Golden Mountain. The abbot of this temple was called Fa Ming, and was a man of great sanctity. He was sitting in meditation when he suddenly heard the sound of a baby crying, and moved to pity he went down to the river bank. What should he see but a plank with an infant tied to it, lodged against the bank of the stream. He fished the plank out, and at once saw the letter which acquainted him with the child's origin. He named it River Float and gave it to some peasants to bring up, himself keeping the letter safely locked away. Years slipped by. When River Float was seventeen, the abbot had him shaved and admitted into the priesthood with the name Xianzang, and Xianzang applied himself with great industry to the study of the Way. One spring day, when the priests were discussing abstract points of doctrine in the shade of some pine trees, a doltish priest, who had been downed in an argument by Xianzang, lost his temper and cried. Who are you to lay down the law to us, you miserable animal? No one knows who you are, who were your parents, or where you came from. Stung by this insult, Xian rushed to the abbot with tears in his eyes and said, You have taught me that all human beings receive their portion of yin and yang, and their share of the five elements from a male and female parent. Can there be such a thing in the world as a man without father and mother? If you indeed wish to seek your true parents, said the abbot, follow me to my cell. Xian Tsang followed him, and from a hiding place above the beam, the abbot took down a small box, opened it, and took a letter, written in blood, and a woman's shirt, which he gave to Xian Tsang, who read the letter, and knew at last the names of his parents, and the wrong that had been done to them. He who fails to avenge the wrongs done to a parent is unworthy of the name of man, said Xiang Tsang. Let me go and find my mother, and I swear that afterwards, with an incense bowl upon my head, I will rebuild this temple to repay your reverence for all you have done for me. If you are determined to go, said the abbot, Take this letter and shirt with you, travel in the guise of a mendicant priest, and when you get to Chiang Chou, go straight to the chancellery and demand to see your mother. It happened that when Xiang Zhang arrived, Liu was again absent on business. For heaven wished mother and child to meet. Xiang Zhang went straight to the door and begged for alms. Now it also appeared that his mother had dreamt that night of a waning moon becoming full again. She thought to herself, Of my mother I have no news. My husband was slain, and my child I threw into the river. If by chance he was rescued and cared for, he must by now be seventeen, perhaps today Heaven will cause us to be reunited, who can tell?" Suddenly she heard someone at the gate reciting the scriptures and begging for alms. She went out and asked him where he came from. When he said he came from the Golden Mountain, she bade him come in and gave him some rice. "'Do you know you're very like my husband?' she said, looking at him closely. Then dismissing her maids, she asked, "'Little priest, Were you admitted to the order in childhood, or when you grew up? What is your name, and who were your parents? To tell the truth, said Xiang Zhang, I have a wrong to avenge great as heaven, an enmity deep as the sea. My father, the abbot Fa Ming, told me to come here and find my mother. What is your mother's surname, she asked. It is Yin, he said, and her name is Wen Chiao. My father's surname is Chen. I am called River Float, and my name in religion is Xiang Zhang. I am Wenqiao, she said, but have you any proof of what you are? At this he flung himself upon his knees and said sobbing, Mother, if you do not believe me, here is a letter written in blood and a shirt as proof. She recognized them at once, and they embraced weeping. Suddenly she cried, Leave me, leave me! What, after being parted for seventeen years, must we separate again so soon? Quick as lightning, she said. If Leo comes back and finds you here, he will strike you dead on the spot. Tomorrow I will pretend that I am unwell, and that I once made a vow to give a hundred pairs of slippers as alms. I will come to your temple to fulfil the vow. Then we can talk. Next day, she lay on her bed, refusing food and drink. When Liu questioned her, she said, I once made a vow to give a hundred pairs of shoes as alms. Five nights ago, I dreamt that a priest, holding a sword in his hand, came to claim the shoes. Since then, I have felt ill. That can easily be settled, he said. I wish you had told me before. He went to his stewards, and told them to get a hundred peasant families of the neighbourhood each, to plait a pair of straw shoes, and send them in within five days. When this had been done, and the shoes duly received, she asked Leo what temples there were in the neighbourhood, and where she could fulfil her vow. The Golden Mountain Temple and the Burnt Mountain Temple, he said, either would do. I have often heard that the Golden Mountain Temple is well worth a visit, she said. I think I will go there. Leo ordered his servants to make ready a boat, and with some confidential maids she went on board and was brought to the golden mountain. When the maids came up to the temple and announced that their lady had come to fulfil a vow, all the priests came out to welcome the visitor. After paying her respects to the image of the Bodhisattva and distributing small arms, she told her maids to put the shoes in a basket and bring them to the hall, while she burned heart incense and prayed. Then she asked the abbot to tell all the priests to withdraw, and kneeling in front of Xiang Tsang, she drew the shoe and sock from his left foot. Sure enough, the top joint of his little toe was missing. Mother and son then embraced again, and she thanked the abbot for his kindness to her child. "'Now that we have met,' said the abbot, "'the safest thing for you, madam, would be to go home at once so as not to arouse the suspicions of your captor. Wen chiao agreed, and gave an incense ring to Xian Tsang, telling him to take it to the Inn of the Hundred Thousand Blossoms, where his grandmother had been left behind. I will give you a letter, she said, which you will take to the king's capital, to the house of the minister Yin Kai Shan, which is just to the left of the Golden Hall.' Give the letter to my father, and tell him to ask the Emperor to send horses and men to Chiang Chou, that the impostor may be taken and executed. Your father avenged, and I myself rescued from his clutches. For the present, I dare not stay any longer, or he will be wondering why I have been away so long.' When Xianzang reached the Inn of Ten Thousand Blossoms, he asked the landlord what had become of the lady who had been left there some time ago by a traveller called Chun. Yes, he said, she was here for a long time, but she went blind and for several years wasn't able to pay for her room. In the end, she went to live in a derelict potter's kiln near the southern gate, and she picks up a living by begging in the streets. It's a very strange thing that the gentleman who left her should have disappeared like this for years on end without a word of news. Xian Ceng succeeded in finding the old lady. Your voice, she said, is very like that of my son Chen O. Oh. I I am not Chen O. Oh. But I am his son, and Wen Chiao is my mother. Why did your father and mother not come too? she asked. My father, he said, was killed by a bandit who forced my mother to be his wife. I have a letter of hers here, and an incense ring. Alas! cried the old woman, that I should ever have thought my son had cruelly abandoned me. Little did I think that he had been done to death. Heaven, however, has taken pity on me and continued our line, so that at last a grandson has come to seek me out." He took her back to the inn, paid what was owing, and hired her a room. Then promising to be back in a few weeks, he set off for the capital, and soon found the minister Yin's house. I am a relation of your master's, he said to the porter, and I should like to see him. We have no kinsman who is a priest, said the minister, but his wife interposed. Last night I dreamt of my daughter Wun Chiao. Perhaps he has a message from her. So Xian Tsang was shown in, and when he saw the minister and his wife, he fell weeping to his knees and bowed to them, taking from the folds of his dress a letter. When the minister had read it through, he uttered a piercing cry. What is it? his wife asked. Wife, he said, this is our grandchild. Our son-in-law Chen-O was killed by robbers, and my daughter was forced to live with the murderer as his wife. But do not despair. At tomorrow's court, I will tell the emperor of this, and he will send soldiers to avenge the death of our son-in-law. When the King of Tang heard the story, he fell into a great rage and put 60,000 soldiers at the minister's disposal. They hurried to Chou by forced marches and pitched camp on the north bank of the river. Then he sent a message to the two imperial assessors of Chou, telling them the whole story and asking for their assistance. Before dawn, Liu's house was surrounded. He was woken by the sound of cannons and drums, and before he could collect his wits, he was in his enemy's hands. Minister Yin ordered him to be bound and taken to the place of execution while the army camped outside the walls of the city. When Yin had taken his seat in the governor's residence, he at once sent for Wenqiao. At first, she was ashamed to be seen remembering that she had yielded herself to a stranger. But she was at last persuaded that she had acted under compulsion and had nothing to be ashamed of. Then father and child embraced weeping, and Xian Zhang still wept bitterly. You two have no need to worry any more, said Yin. The culprit has been bound, and it only remains to dispose of him. It so happened that the other bandit, Li, who had been left in charge of the boat, had recently been arrested. He was first cut to pieces and his head exposed on a stake. But Liu was brought to the exact spot where he had done Chen to death, and in the presence of Yin, Wenqiao and Xiang Zhang, he was ripped open and his heart and liver offered to the soul of Chun Oh, a written dedication being solemnly burnt. A yaksha who was patrolling the waters brought the dedication in its spirit form to the Dragon King. The dragon at once sent a turtle officer to Chun saying, Best congratulations! Your wife, child and father-in-law are all on the bank, sacrificing to you. I will now restore your soul to you and let you go. He told a yaksha to escort Chun's body to the surface of the water and there to give him back his soul. After the sacrifice, Qiao tried hard to fling herself into the river and was only with difficulty restrained by her son. While the struggle was in progress, a corpse suddenly appeared, floating on the water, and finally rested on the river bank. Craning forward to peer at it, Qiao recognized the body as that of her husband, whereupon she burst once more into loud wailing. Everyone pressed forward to look and in a moment they saw the hands unclasp and the legs stretch. The whole body began to gradually stir and Chen clambered up onto the bank and sat down, to the intense astonishment of everyone present. Blinking and opening his eyes, Chen saw his wife, father-in-law and a young priest gathered about him, weeping. "'What are you all doing here?' he asked. "'After you were killed, I bore this son,' said Wun Chiao, who fortunately found a patron in the abbot of the Golden Mountain Temple. Then she told him the whole story, adding, "'But how did you get back your soul?' "'It all came of my buying that golden carp and setting it free,' he said, "'for the carp turned out to be a dragon king.' Afterwards, when the brigand threw me into the river, I came to no harm thanks to his protection and he has just given me back my soul. When the officials of the place heard the story, they all came to congratulate Chun. The Minister Yin then ordered a grand banquet to fate them. And next day, he and his troops set out on their homeward march. When they reached the Inn of 10,000 Blossoms, Yin called a halt, and Chen and his son went to look for the old lady. The night before, she had dreamt that a plank of wood blossomed, and that the magpies were clamouring behind the house. She thought to herself, perhaps it means that my grandson is coming, she was just thinking this when Chun and Xianzang arrived. After mother and son had embraced and the bill had been paid, they all started off for the capital. At the next court, the minister Yin stepped forward, reported to the emperor what had happened, and recommended that Chun O oh should be used in some important capacity, commensurate with his great talents. He was accordingly made sub-chancellor of the Grand Secretariat and assisted the government in the framing of its policies. Xian Zhang devoted himself to meditation and religious austerities in the Heng Fu Temple. If you do not know, How things went on after this you must listen to what is told in the next chapter. Listening to Monkey, an abridged translation of the great Chinese classic Journey to the West, written by Wu Cheng'en, translated by Arthur Whaley, and narrated by Bob Jones.